BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. The Senate trial of President Donald J. Trump is over, except for the final vote. And whatever the outcome of that vote, and we all know what it's going to be, one thing we can all agree on, the trial could not have been handled worse or less fair or more incomplete. Yeah, it makes you yearn for the good old days, not so long ago, when senators from both parties actually talked to each other. When, no matter which party was in control, Republicans were actually willing to work together with Democrats to get things done. And when the Senate had a leader we could trust, respect, and count on to uphold the tradition of the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body. One such leader was South Dakota Senator Tom Daschle, who served as Democratic leader of the Senate from 1995 to 2000 and as Majority Leader of the Senate from 2001 through 2004. For a look back and a look ahead, we caught up with Senator Daschle at his law office in downtown Washington. Senator Daschle, good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Thanks for spending some time with us. So in the last impeachment trial, you played a leading role as the Democratic Leader of the Senate at that time. As you've been watching this impeachment trial of Donald J. Trump, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that times have changed, (laughs) to say (laughs) the least. Um, It's a whole different experience than what I had uh, in the 90s. Uh, Obviously, the circumstances are a lot different. In Bill Clinton's uh, situation, it was more a personal matter. In this, it has to do with uh, fundamental questions about the rule of law and uh, how um, we might view abuse of power and checks and balances that come with it. Um, we had a much more bipartisan experience in the mm-hmm. 90s than ex- we're seeing today, and that's unfortunate. We didn't have to contend with cable news and social media like they have now, um, nor did we deal with a president who was unwilling to, co- to cooperate. Uh, Bill Clinton was quite cooperative in the process, and all those differences, I think, are... Uh, are quite remarkable when you think about the fact that it was just 21 years ago. Do you think this has been a fair trial? I do. I I think it's been fair in one respect, that people have been given an opportunity to express themselves and to uh, be heard. It's unfair in another context, and that is the lack of witnesses, I think, really present a, a real question as to the degree to which all the facts are known. The facts will become known at some point, and I, I regret that they can't be a part of this legal process. The senators all sw- uh, stood and uh, took an oath, raised the right hand, to do impartial justice in the trial of uh, Donald J. Trump. And yet, even before the trial began, several had said they were going to vote to acquit. Uh, in effect, violating their oath? 
Well, I, I think history will be the judge, Bill, but I, I, I would say I, uh, it's hard for me to rationalize how one can take that oath and then already declare their intentions um, almost simultaneously. So it's, uh, I, I, I think it undermines people's confidence in the system, in the process, in the degree to which there really is an objective review of the circumstances and some consideration given to what the ultimate judgment should be. One other difference between today and back then, 21 years ago, is um, the leadership. You and Senator Lott seem to have been able to work together in setting the rules for that trial. Am, am I correct? And how did that happen? We did. Out. We did. And I, I must say, I give Trent great credit for how he managed uh, his role. Uh, I've said this publicly and I've said it to you personally. I, I just think that that uh, Trent Lott deserves uh, far more credit than sometimes he's given for the kind of tone that we set for the entire process. But he reached out to me. He was the majority leader at the time. Right. He reached out to me and said, I want to do this together. And so it was a tumultuous few weeks as we tried to figure out what together meant. Uh, we didn't have consensus. We worked for two or three weeks over the holiday period to try to find some consensus and ultimately came together in the old Senate chamber uh, to see if we could work through what uh, significant differences there were. We ultimately did that and uh, offered a resolution that, uh, that uh, incredibly got uh, a unanimous vote on the Senate floor. So you adopted a set of rules together that the entire Senate approved. That's correct. That's correct. And let me emphasize again, it took about a month to get there, but we wouldn't give up. And we really tried as hard as we could to reach out to the disparate elements within our caucuses to try to figure out right. just what we needed to do to get to that unanimity. When you look at the, I know they're now being called the Trump 51, <laughs> the Republican senators who voted, we don't want to hear any witnesses, some of whom you served with, why do you think they would vote that way? They don't want to hear the truth? They're afraid of Donald Trump? What's your read? I, I don't know that you can generically categorize all their motivations, uh, I, and you have to really give them the opportunity to express themselves. If I had to guess, I would say it's primarily three things. First of all, uh, it's a belief that the president's um, actions did not rise to the level of Im impeachment and, and, and conviction. Um, that's a legitimate argument. I, I, uh, many of us came to that conclusion for Bill Clinton. Um, the second one, however, is intimidation. I think the president has been enormously effective in intimidating his Republican colleagues, especially in the House and Senate. And third, I think that that intimidation has led to a, a political um, lack of confidence and a, a fear, a paranoia about the political consequences of veering too far away from the mainstream within the Republican ranks today. One thing, by the way, is, is, how would you vote if you had to vote today? Oh, I would have voted to convict. I think the president uh, created uh, a set of circumstances, and we probably don't even fully appreciate the magnitude of not only this instance, but so many other instances that uh, fall outside the realm of political and presidential behavior that really has to be 
uh, addressed. One thing you and I have talked about before, and also with Senator Lott, is the, and I know you care deeply about, is the institution of the United States Senate. That's been hurt by this process, hasn't it? No question. I think the real question now is how irreparable it's been hurt. It's, uh, it's not the Senate that the Founding Fathers envisioned. The Founding Fathers expected the Senate to be the checks and balances required in any democracy, in any democratic republic. And we veered far, far away from that role today. And I'm concerned about the implications. I'm concerned about what uh, this may do to embolden President Trump uh, in the coming year, in the coming five years, if he's reelected. I'm concerned as well about lowering the bar on presidential behavior just overall for future presidents. So the, I think more than just the acquittal, what troubles me the most are the implications going forward, historically, institutionally, and personally. Right. I mean, the Senate senators, again, in effect, are saying uh, the president can—he said, I have Article Two, and that enables me to do whatever I want as president. And in effect, they said, right on. That's correct. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's going to be hard. I, 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 you know, someday the roles will be reversed. And I'm curious as to whether those same Republicans would feel just the same way if it were a Democratic president. I suspect that they wouldn't, and therein lies the real challenge. How can we uh, constantly find the reverse role-playing that occurs depending on who's in what right. office? Do you think the Senate can still uh, call itself the world's greatest deliberative body after this experience? Not today. But unfortunately, as I look around the world, Bill, as, as I know you have, I have a hard time finding many deliberative bodies today. <laughs> Democracy is is uh, is not what it used to be. And I think we've got to do a lot of work to ensure that democratic republics all over the world, the institutions around those democratic republics can be strengthened. But uh, today, there's very little deliberation, and that certainly includes the United States and the United States Senate. Do you fear that the Congress has given up too much of its authority to the it executive? It has. It has. We've been doing that now, though, for some time. Uh, over the years. I mean, we uh, we haven't declared war, as you know, since World War II. We right. still use the uh, AUMF from 2001 for all military actions that go forward. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've, uh, we've delegated responsibility not only uh, on matters involving war and peace, but, uh, but budgetary matters as well, giving the president wide latitude to interpret how money would be spent. Uh, we've seen that on the wall especially. Right. And this latest is um, Congress may appropriate money and provide money to an ally to fight an avowed enemy, and yet the president doesn't want to give them to him unless he gets a favor in return. That's correct, and apparently without regard for concern for, for uh, decisions made through the institutions of Congress. Jumping from the Senate alone to Congress in general, again, something that you and Senator Lada and I have discussed uh, a couple of times, um, it's no exaggeration to say, in fact, maybe it's an understatement to say that Congress is bitterly divided today. And it wasn't always that way. Yes, I think of you and Senator Lott. I also think of George Mitchell and Bob Dole working together uh, and working with the Speaker to get things done. What happened? 
Oh, I think a lot of things have happened, Bill, over the years. I, I, I blame the airplane in part, and that's my <laughs> shorthand for the fact that lifestyles for members of Congress have changed dramatically. They leave on Thursday, they come back on Tuesday, and we try to run the country on Wednesdays. Uh, about 100 of them sleep on their sofas every night, and I think that's just uh, public housing I can't support. But I, I think that uh, in but, addition but to the airplane— So the result of that is that they're not here— to have any like family time together no. or social time together or just getting no, to know each other. There's very little relationship building today. In fact, it's noteworthy when people are publicly seen, Republicans and Democrats are seen in a restaurant together, people take note of that. And, and uh, But I've actually literally had members uh, on the Republican side who have said, you know, I'd love to work on something, but but I, I'd rather make this private. I don't want to be known that it's that I'm doing it. And that goes to another problem. The primary process is out of whack today. Um, you know, I, whether you look at the Iowa caucus where 20% of the voters are going to participate, or you look at most primaries today where it's in the, in, in the low teens in some cases, or, or um, very low turnout, primaries have become a distorted sense of democracy, and they become far more important than the general election. Um, the money chase is way out of whack. You know, we're going to spend um, somewhere in the vicinity of $10 billion in this election cycle. And, you know, that money chase where members have to spend two-thirds of their time in the last two years raising money, mm -hmm. all that. And then I would simply and add Congress, social media. members of Congress uh, all the time, nonstop, right. <clears throat> up every two years. And then the social media uh, has, has created a, an environment where truth is just the option. Uh, and because truth is just an option, um, it's harder and harder to ascertain the facts. You put that whole volatile mix together, and you've got dysfunction. Uh, dysfunction to uh, the extent where compromise is viewed as capitulation today. And as long as compromise is capitulation, compromise, in my view, is the oxygen of democracy, and compromise today is, is uh, a rarity. Uh, and some people consider a four-letter word. A four-letter word, exactly. Right. Is there any way to fix it? <laughs> well, it's it's too simplistic to say this, but I do believe it starts with real leadership. You know, we, this isn't the only time we face this. You know, we 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 saw enormous disruption in the '60s. We saw it in the '30s. We've seen it at various times throughout our history. We saw it in the 1850s, of course, with the with the prelude to the Civil War. Um, but it's always taken leadership. It's always taken people with political courage, with a backbone, with a vision, with a willingness to bring people together. And uh, it's, it's gonna take again. It's, but it's also gonna take a, a view on the part of the large majority of people who wanna see Congress work together, who really wanna see governance again, uh, and you know, we've just not seen that. I will say, I, I, if I'm looking for a silver lining, it's mm -hmm. the interest people have today in running for office. We had more women and more candidates who have offered themselves in the last couple of cycles than at any time in history. So people are stepping up, but we need to see a lot more of that. One thing you've alluded to but haven't specifically mentioned, uh, which I believe is a factor too, I want to get your thoughts on, is reapportionment and redistricting correct, in terms of the, the kind of districts that are drawn. That's right. To, I'm sure sorry. you've said it because, I've, you know, we, we all, those of us who are concerned about redistricting say it all the time, but today voters are choosing, I mean, uh, 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 political people are choosing their voters, not the other way around. 
Um, and as the more that happens, the more the, the elected officials can choose their own voters, the more disjointed and the more unrepresentative it becomes. That doesn't change the circumstances, of course, in the Senate, where you've got statewide uh, elections for senators, but it is, uh, it is a major factor. And, uh, you know, the fact that about 85% of most members of Congress get reelected every two years is an indication of how safe the general election has, has become. Um, but I go back to that assertion a moment ago. Mm -hmm. Primaries have become the real culprit in so many of the problems we're facing today and something we've got to address. I want to move there in just a second, but back to the Senate trial. Um, we're assuming, and as we speak here the day before, that the Senate is going to acquit Donald J. Trump, President Trump. What do you expect or what do you foresee in the Trump presidency, whether it's another eight months or, God forbid for me, another four years, how he will respond to that acquittal? My, my assumption is he's going to feel emboldened. He's going to feel as if now there are really no real constraints, that he doesn't have to, you know, it's unheard of that a president would be impeached a second time, and most likely whatever he did would end in, in the same way that this one has. So I think he will feel emboldened. I worry a lot about what that may mean in public policy, and, you know, he seems to be overly confident, in my view, that his gut, his his own instincts are far more important than what he can learn from people around him. So the only question is whether or not we can avoid a crisis of some kind. You know, we're facing the potential for all kinds of crises over the next five years, and whether we can get through crises as well in the next five years as we did in the last three uh, remains to be seen, but that, that concerns me a great deal. I want to move into some other issues, so let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Today's podcast on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, a real powerhouse in the labor movement. The AFT today represents over 1.7 million members in more than 3,000 local affiliates. From pre-K through 12th grade, college professors, and administrative staff nationwide, all under the dynamic leadership of President Randy Weingarten. Leading teachers in their highly successful strikes last year in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Colorado. We salute America's teachers and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with Senator Tom Daschle here on the Bill Press Pod. Senator, you mentioned crisis just before the break. One public policy crisis that seems to have gotten buried with all the attention to impeachment, like a lot of other issues, by the way, is a health care crisis in this country, an issue you spent a lot of time on, wrote a great book about. 
Uh, how do you see the state of health today of the Affordable Care Act? Well, I think it's... And the health care in general in the country. I think so. it's remarkable that uh, the Affordable Care Act has survived uh, in spite of the onslaught for the last more than now, more than a decade. Uh, the Republicans have done everything possible, including something like 75 votes to repeal, uh, and it survived. It survived Supreme Court tests. It survived congressional tests. It surprised. Uh, it survived uh, just about every test you can put before it. Uh, so its resiliency is encouraging. But even though it has survived, it's been weakened, as you know. We don't have the mandate. We don't mm -hmm. have many of the tools that the Affordable Care Act offered. And so I think we still have a lot of work to do. We still have the same three basic problems. Uh, we don't have adequate access for Americans. We don't have uh, adequate quality for Americans today. And health care costs way too much. And so all three of those challenges still are out there and have to be addressed in a meaningful way. And do you think the solution is moving forward to strengthen Obamacare, to fix Obamacare? I do. I think that there are a lot of things. I think it's fair to say that for the foreseeable future, uh, we're going to continue to rely on what I call the $3 trillion uh, public-private partnership that we have in healthcare today. We don't really have a system. We have a collage of subsystems mm -hmm. that are both public and private. And, uh, and while we uh, have ensured uh, roughly 85 to 90 percent of most Americans. Uh, about a third of those who are insured are grossly underinsured, and uh, they can't afford an even $400 health bill this year. So we've got to make health care more affordable. We've got to build on this $3 trillion public-private partnership, and we've got to find ways to make this collage of subsystems work better. Are you uh, moving forward, marching under the banner of Medicare for All? I'm not at this point, only because I don't think it's likely. I th I'd rather do what I think we can accomplish rather than think what we should do aspirationally. I do believe that there's greater roles for, for government. First, I'd like to see 100% uh, percent of all states, all 50 states, participate in the Medicaid expansion program. Secondly, I'd like to make the exchanges work more functionally. We've got to include reinsurance. We've got to include more subsidies for those just above the poverty line mm -hmm. that are uh, that are not able to get subsidies today. Uh, we've got to figure out ways to reduce costs and be more value-driven. We've got to put more effort on social determinants as well and bring down the cost by recognizing the importance of prevention. All of that has to be done uh, in the context of a of a of an infrastructure that we we can we know we can improve. At one time in the in the deliberations over Obamacare. Um, there was a public plan option left out. Time to bring it back? Absolutely. That should have been, that should not have been omitted in the past. And uh, I think it could do a, a good deal to ensure that uh, we can cover uh, people in states where we don't have adequate uh, access to insurance today. Uh, we can create greater viability in the competitive markets. And, and I think we can establish some standard by which other plans can be judged and may be a step toward Medicare for all. Exactly. You know, gradually. So, Senator, I remember uh, years ago, um, I think it might have been 2007 on my show when I was broadcasting from the Center for American Progress in the early, early days, uh, you came into the studio and um, 
endorsed Barack Obama on my show for president of the United States when everybody else was thinking, Hillary's the one. Um, who's your candidate this time? Well, I've, I've known and worked with Joe, uh, Joe Biden for a long, long time, Bill, and he is, uh, he's my, my favorite. I've, I've been helping him um, a little on the periphery, nothing like it was with the Obama years, but, uh, but uh, supporting him and helping him, and, uh, and uh, I think he would, he would do a, a terrific job. Do you think he can beat Donald Trump? I do, absolutely. On, and, and what's his message? Well, I think his message is uh, let's, let's, let's start to do what I've been spending the last few minutes talking about. How can we bring the country together? How can we really create more of a consensus around what governance should look like? Can we reach out? I know it's almost impossible to think that anybody can do that today, but if anybody uh, can do that, of those running this year, I believe Joe is the most qualified. Right. Uh, are you afraid of a Bernie Sanders presidency or nominee? Well, I think Bernie presents some challenges that uh, that may make it difficult for a candidate to win. I think he appeals mightily to a significant percentage of young people of of, uh, of the progressive wing in the party. What I don't know is whether or not that is enough to to, to generate the 51 percent you need to to get across the finish line in a presidential election. I I, I have my doubts about that. And as you know, um, we've had a big field of candidates, um, yet there are some who chose not to run, uh, even though they were encouraged by their friends to run, as I encouraged you <laughs> to run, <laughs> Tom Daschle. Why not? Well, I'm flattered. I, was, I wasn't the only one, hardly the only one. There's a, a lot of people wanted you to run. Terribly flattered, and especially coming from you and Carol. But I, I, I you know, I, I, times pass and uh, things change. It's been a long time. It's hard to believe it's been 15 years since I've been in competitive politics. I don't think I'm the candidate I could have been uh, in 2003 or four. I don't think, uh, you know, things just change so much that I just don't think you can roll the calendar back. And that's my assumption. But I'm very flattered that anybody would think I could. At the same time, and I'm not sure, I think you're younger than Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. <laughs> so. They've stayed in the ring. They've stayed in the arena, and that makes a big difference. Yeah. That keeps you young and keeps you... They keep, you know, I, I remember uh, having just been elected the first time to the Senate. How many senators came to me who were up in the next cycle saying, tell me what's changed since I last ran? Mm. And that would have only been four years. But people were curious. Politics changes dramatically in a very short period of time. The politics that I understood and was used to and got good at over time is not what politics is today. And so you have to stay in the ring. You have to stay in the arena to be able to be fully conscious and, and totally appreciative of how dramatic things have changed. And you have mentioned a couple of times Iowa. Um, by the time this airs, the Iowa caucuses will be behind us. How long are we going to make Iowa number one in this primary process, particularly for Democrats when it's a state that Democrats are not necessarily going to win? That's a great question. And I, I do think that the Pressure is ratcheting up for some change to occur that that gives more states more of an opportunity to have that kind of impact on the 
early nominating process. It's really a profound opportunity for Iowa voters, but it's surprisingly to me only 20% turn out to do it. Right. But I and, and as as others have noted, it isn't as diverse a state as many others, and so I think it is important for us to figure out a way to. Uh, alternate uh, that role and alternate the opportunities that other states could have in having that first impact on presidential nominations. Plus, there's the issue of the caucus. I mean, that's one of the reasons why so few people participate. Average is two hours for one of these caucuses. You cannot vote absentee. Military, our military cannot cannot vote. If you're disabled. Chances are, you know, you may not be able to get there. And just to spend that much time, plus it's not a, a it's a public vote, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, Well, there are many good and bad aspects of it. I, I, you know, in some ways, I think that participatory uh, opportunity is, is a healthy thing, is kind of a, you know, it's, it's democracy in, in some ways at its best. You're out there just fighting for what you believe in and speaking out. Obviously, you can't replace the importance of a secret ballot. And, uh, but I do think having the mix of caucuses and primaries is probably not necessarily anything we should be, um, be troubled by. But, I, but you're right. There are downsides to a caucus, and that's, you've listed some good ones. And you know, we, we sort of don't pay maybe as much attention to New Hampshire because it's second, but I would make the same arguments about New Hampshire that's right. <laughs> that make about Iowa. Absolutely. And then you get on to states which do better reflect the diversity of this country, like Nevada and South Carolina. That's right. I, I don't know how many years ago it's been now, at least 10, that uh, we've tried to become more diverse and put more focus. And then you've got Super Tuesday, which is the ultimate uh, conclusion to the, to the uh, and I shouldn't say conclusion, but ultimately the, uh, the degree to which any, any uh, candidate has a chance is going to have to de be demonstrated on Super Tuesday. Right. And Super Tuesday even more important this year because California is part Absolutely. of Super Tuesday. Absolutely. Of course. So we finally, we finally count in California. Senator Daschle, it's so good to visit with you. Thanks so much for uh, all your leadership and uh, your continued involvement in public policy issues in this country. It's good to see you. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be with you once again. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for listening. A big thanks to Senator Tom Daschle, a great, great American. Uh, and we ask you to do us one more favor. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. I know we remind you of that every time, but it's so important. Just go to wherever you're listening to this podcast, search for the Bill Press Pod again if you haven't already done so, and then click on subscribe and you are in also encourage you to follow me on Twitter so you don't miss my daily tweets at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That way you'll also know about every upcoming edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much again. Stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Bill Press Pod.